Before we dive in, I want to let you know that my pediatric food allergy course, Fear to Freedom, is officially open for enrollment right now on emilynolan.com. One more thing before I jump in, I'm a mama, not a doctor. So the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a qualified medical professional. Any questions you may have concerning the diagnosis or treatment of a medical condition should be directed to your doctor or another qualified healthcare provider. This is a lifestyle. This is, you know, a full-on commitment. You are coming to your allergist's office once every other week, maybe at, at the very least once a month, and then you're doing this therapy every day at home in a very, very controlled manner. When a parent of a child with food allergies learns about our child's diagnosis, there's so much we feel like we don't know and are unprepared for. This episode, Food Allergy Master Course, is a mini course or refresher in food allergies. You can come back to this episode as often as you need and share it with anyone who may benefit. This episode is especially helpful for the parents of newly diagnosed children with food allergies. When Ollie was first diagnosed with food allergies at seven months old, I pretended to know many of the things the doctor was telling me in the short appointment. I remember nodding my head at my son's first allergist, feeling dizzy, overwhelmed, and unprepared. I could only think about the diagnosis and how in an instant our lives were changed. I had a million questions and I didn't feel confident enough to ask them because I guess I felt like I was supposed to know what was going on and I was afraid to be vulnerable at that moment. As soon as we got in the car after Ollie's first skin test appointment, I wept. The grief and sadness came pouring out. I was sad because in an instant, all the plans I had for our lives together had changed. I was angry because I felt like the doctor had no sympathy for the journey I was about to embark on and the huge changes my family had to make. I was overwhelmed because the only information I left the office with was to avoid certain allergens. He seemed so blasé and I was the exact opposite. I have an education in nutrition and very little of it prepared me for the journey of being a parent to a child with food allergies. On top of everything going on, I also had to think about what I was going to feed our son as soon as we got home. Learning about our child's diagnosis can be extremely overwhelming. A lot can change in one hour. Massive diet, lifestyle, and environment changes have to be made to keep our children safe and healthy. And we have to learn this stuff as soon as possible because eating food doesn't stop. We're confronted with this journey all day, every day. That's why it's important to educate ourselves to the point we feel confident and it becomes easier. For anyone wondering what you need to buy to keep your child safe and healthy, skincare, supplements, environmentals, accessories, I have a recommended products page on my website that will get you started today. These are products that I have researched carefully and my son and I use every single day. The field of immunology is one of the most complex fields. No one who's not an immunologist or doctor understands the medical jargon and measurements that come with the food allergy diagnosis. What is IgE? How do I read my son's blood work? How do I interpret a mild versus severe reaction? When should I worry? In this episode with Dr. Courtney Blair, We'll answer all of these questions and more to simplify your learning curve and help you along your child's food allergy journey. Dr. Blair is a board-certified allergist and immunologist in the D.C., Northern Virginia area. She received her M.D. from Oregon Health and Sciences University in 2002 and completed a combined residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago in 2006 and was board-certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. She then completed a comprehensive fellowship in allergy and immunology at Rush University Medical Center in 2008. Dr. Blair has special interest in the management of food allergies and anaphylaxis in addition to asthma, chronic sinitis, allergic rhinitis, and chronic hives. She recently served as the president of the Greater Washington Area Allergy and Immunology Society in 2021 and is a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and a member of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. She has been listed as a top doc by Washingtonian Magazine, Northern Virginia Magazine, and other regional publications for several years. Dr. Blair is originally from Washington, D.C., 
and lives in the Northern Virginia area with her husband and two children, her dog, cat, and chinchilla. (laughs) Dr. Blair, I'm so excited to have you here to help us simplify what's going on when our child is diagnosed with food allergies. Yes, I am very, very excited actually to be talking to you and your listening audience. I'm hopefully going to, you know, help people make good informed decisions and get a little extra knowledge uh, before they see their allergist. Then let's dive right in. What happens in our child's body when they have a food allergy reaction? And can you explain for the layperson struggling to grasp the complexity of the immune system, what it all looks like and what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think the first thing that I like to talk about with people is, you know, food allergy versus food sensitivities and food intolerances. But uh, typically when we're talking about food allergy, and sometimes I'll joke and and I'll say, you know, this is food allergy with a capital A, not anything less. And we're talking about acute, meaning pretty quick onset allergic reactions, and I know my definition now is circular a little bit, but an allergic reaction is typically defined by not only the speed that it happens, but certain characteristics. So we're talking about itching, we're talking about hives, we're talking about swelling. We might even be talking about runny nose, itchy, watery eyes. Uh, We might even be talking about breathing problems like coughing, wheezing, tightness, shortness of breath, or gastrointestinal symptoms. It can depend on what's happening route of exposure, what the allergen is, you know, if we're talking about a food allergy versus an environmental allergy versus a stinging insect allergy versus a medication allergy. But for food allergies, the ones that we get really worried about, typically these are what are called IgE, which stands for immunoglobulin E allergic reactions or hypersensitivity reactions. And in in a classification of different types of allergies, this is also what's called a a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. And I I don't want to go confusing people, but with, with these acute type 1 IgE-mediated reactions with foods, these are the ones that can potentially hurt people quite a bit if we're not careful. It's going to be your classic form of peanut allergy or any of these top eight or depending on um, you know what we're talking about, maybe top nine food allergens. By that, I'm referring to peanuts or tree nuts, fish, shellfish, milk, egg, wheat, soy, sesame. It could potentially happen with any food, but those nine groups are, are kind of our most common ones for causing uh, robust IgE-mediated food reactions. Uh, so that's sort of like a basic, basic kind of layout for those type 1 hypersensitivity reactions or acute reactions to foods. IgE can be overproduced uh, in, in allergic individuals, and it is an overproduction of this bad antibody that if you're then exposed to what that antibody recognizes, it can then cause a whole host of bad things. Uh, so IgE, it's in your it's in your blood, but it doesn't really do much unless it lands on what's called a receptor, which if you use the analogy of like a key and a, and a lock, the key would be IgE and the lock would be the receptor. Um, and then the door would be these uh, mast cells. There are other cells too, but the mast cells like mast of a ship, M-A-S-T, Uh, These cells have a lot of chemicals inside of them that are naturally occurring, but you want to have your body regulate them tightly. The biggest, I think, most important ingredient or chemical within the mast cell that we worry about is histamine. But there are other things like tryptase and prostaglandins and leukotrienes. These are chemicals that mediate or cause a lot of the signs and symptoms of an allergic reaction. Uh, Just to kind of recap so far, you've got immunoglobulin E doesn't do much unless you're exposed. If you get exposed, that IgE plus your allergen opens up the door to the mast cell that then releases a bunch of these bad actors. And uh, it's then that these bad actors start to cause problems. Uh, And histamine, if it's in the eyeball, you're going to get eye redness and tearing. If histamine gets released in the nose, you're going to have congestion, mucus production, sneezing. In the skin, it can cause hives or swelling. And in the tongue or the throat or the gastrointestinal tract, it can cause uh, swelling, uh, which then can lead to some major problems. Uh, So throat swelling is definitely 
not a great thing, you know, and if it's severe, that is not going to be compatible with being alive very long, which is scary. If histamine gets released in the lungs, then you can have spasticity, mucus production, and you can have a severe pulmonary reaction that can also be potentially life-threatening. And if histamine gets released and starts to interact with the lining of the blood vessels, then you can have major shifts in blood pressure, which then can lead to what's called anaphylactic shock. And that also can be potentially very harmful. In fact, in some cases, fatal in in its most extreme forms. But that's (laughs) sort of food allergy soup to nuts. Sorry for the bad pun. Uh, in in what's happening biomechanically, bringing in the the biology behind it, but then also some of the the primary signs and symptoms and some of the the main players. So you've gone over a little bit of the signs and symptoms. Do you have any other common signs of food allergies we should be aware of? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that I like to tell our patients, and then when I'm training our uh, medical assistants and other staff members too, is that food allergies and and, and allergy reactions in general can look different in different people at different times. So just to keep in mind what has happened maybe to one person in the past, it might not be what happens in the future. Uh, But in general, the things that I really get concerned about, uh, I kind of distill it down to the things that I learned in medical school with acute life-saving kind of awareness are the ABCs. (laughs) So A stands for airway, and we already kind of talked a little bit, but airway could involve, I I bring in the face, so uh, lip swelling, facial swelling, puffiness, uh, that I get concerned, but especially if there's tongue swelling, and not to joke or make fun of it, but it's all like somebody talking really funny if if they're having problems enunciating clearly, if their tongue is too swollen or if it's protruding out of their mouth, that is not good. Uh, That could be a sign of an airway problem. Or depending on the age of the person, you know, it could be kind of just a, a hand to the throat gesture, kind of like the universal sign of choking. That can be a thing uh, that you might see as a sign. In a younger kid, that might be all you see. In an older child or in an adult, it might be complaints of my throat feels weird, it feels clogged, it feels full, it feels tight, I feel like I've got something stuck in my throat, just major pain or discomfort in the throat soon after eating or being exposed to a food allergen. Sometimes it can involve a a rapid and distinct change in voice, like a scruffiness or hoarseness that wasn't there. And that I think would kind of recap A for airway. And then B for breathing would kind of encompass anything that doesn't seem right in terms of how somebody looks in terms of their effort breathing. I like to keep it really general. I've heard this described by parents as junky breathing, weird coughing or new cough or spastic coughing or or wheezing. That would be a definite not good thing for the B for breathing. But labor breathing could look like fast breathing or someone really working hard to breathe for no good reason. Uh, There's another term called retractions, which if you kind of lift up a kiddo's shirt, uh, what you'll see is that in between their ribs or above their clavicles, every time they breathe in, you're seeing kind of, well, their skin kind of getting sucked in. And that's that's a visual cue that that person is really working hard to breathe or just a rapid breathing pace. So, I mean, most of us at rest are going to be breathing, you know, maybe about like 10 times a minute, but if they're breathing every second or every other second, that's, that's it. Especially if they're at rest, that, that would be a cue that that person's having a harder time. So that's a, that's a critical thing. And then C for circulation is a little bit harder to describe, but generally speaking, we're trying to keep in the fold uh, signs and symptoms um, of a dropping blood pressure. So that can also look different in different people at different times, but uh, some people may literally look green. That sort of phrase, green in the gills. People look sallow or pale even. Uh, We don't like that. That would be definitely something to not ignore. If someone's blue or or on the other hand, uh, beet red, uh, just very, very flushed, very, very red faced, or if their skin is covered with red, blotchy, raised, itchy lesions, especially if it's involving most of the body surface area, that could be another skin manifestation. But circulatory symptoms also can involve panic. You know, someone who just looks like they have fear and dread in their eyes. In our medical textbooks, it's described as an impending sense of doom. Patients have described to me that they suddenly felt that they were going to die, and they might not be able to enunciate that or or say that 
very clearly if they're young or if they've got, you know, maybe not the right words for it or if they're too sick to talk. But a panicky look is also not not good. And I would take that seriously. And unfortunately, just to kind of digress a little bit, I think some people, some bystanders, parents, uh, family members may chalk up that panically look to a panic attack. Uh, which, which I would say, you know, when in doubt, it's an allergic reaction. Uh, uh, now, could you have a panic attack while you're having an allergic reaction? You, you bet, because <laughs> it's a very, very scary thing. But you're not going to know. I mean, there's no way to know. So when in doubt, if somebody looks that fearful or really looks that upset about something, I would assume the worst and assume that that is a pathophysiologic response to the allergic reaction and proceed accordingly. Uh, but those are the ABCs. And then sometimes I'll, I'll get a little cute and then I'll add in D for dermis, like the skin, uh, for instance, if people are covered head to toe in hives and I'll add in G for GI symptoms, if people are having protracted vomiting or diarrhea, uh, that's also not great. I mean, people can vomit for a million different reasons, but if there's a known or suspected ingestion of a food allergen and someone's throwing up more than once or throwing up with a lot of distress or vomiting with diarrhea after a, a known or suspected food ingestion, I would also take that very seriously. I think for your, your listeners, what I would highly encourage them to do is look at uh, uh, the Food Allergy Research and Education page. There is a sheet that really nicely delineates with really easy to kind of view infographics about all of those signs and symptoms. And in a pinch, I mean, it is very hard to absorb all of that in, in a, an acute phase, because it's never going to happen at the right time. You know, these allergic reactions are always going to happen when you're on vacation or, uh, you know, when you're traveling, when you're at your in-laws house, it's, it's never going to happen when you want it to happen, which is never, but it's, it's, it's just prepare for the worst and prepare to be quick uh, in terms of assessing things, practice ahead of time with learning how to see what an allergic reaction might look like. Uh, but the infographics on the anaphylaxis action plan at the Food Allergy Research and Education website is fantastic. It's what we use for all of our patients. I give it out to everybody that has an epinephrine auto injector because those pens don't work very well if people don't know how to recognize what they're supposed to be using it for. Long story short, that's what it might look like. Um, you might have all those symptoms. You might have one of those symptoms. Uh, and uh, in, in, in all of those scenarios, those are times and places where you would want to use an epinephrine auto injector. So you're saying if there's one, an A or a B or a C isolated, only swollen lips use the auto injector. Yeah, and and we're talking, um, you know, on a scale of severity too. So there, there are, and thank you for clarifying that, because there 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 are some subtle scenarios where maybe if you've had a conversation with your allergist ahead of time, and depending on the circumstances. There could be a middle ground, maybe, <laughs> but I would want to also keep in mind the venue. Uh, so if you're at home, if you're with a parent, if you are with a support person, uh, if you have a mild, isolated, small lip swell, uh, and there is absolutely nothing else going on, I have had some situations, and I, I would talk to your allergist about this ahead of time, but I, I would maybe consider either observing or wiping the food off of the face with a cold uh, kind of towelette or something or hydrating or maybe, maybe a non-sedating antihistamine if things are uncomfortable. But I would watch that person like a hawk. I mean, we're not just going to like give some cetirizine or loratadine, which are the generics for Zyrtec or Claritin. Um, and I do prefer, by the way, non-sedating antihistamines in acute reactions um, and not diphenhydramine, which is the generic for Benadryl, um, because the sedating antihistamines really confuse the clinical picture in a lot of scenarios. But going back to the one mild symptom situation, if it's a little bit of puffiness, 
okay, maybe <laughs> a non-sedating antihistamine might be reasonable, um, but it's not like you're just going to send that kid to bed or, you know, go off to the grocery store. <laughs> you're going to watch that person very carefully for at least two hours afterwards. And if it progresses or if that event then turns into more than two symptoms, even if they're mild, one would be better off using epinephrine in that scenario, in, in my opinion. And most of our practice parameters are going to support that too. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I, I keep in mind with acute management plans is that there are different scenarios. I mean, what if you're on a plane? What if you're, you know, uh, really like uh, camping in a remote area? Uh, Epi works quickly. Epi works to make people feel better. Epi is going to nip it in the bud. Uh, whereas the antihistamines, uh, they take much longer to work. They have not been shown to be effective in keeping the airway open or the breathing normalized. And they certainly don't have any play on stabilizing blood pressure. Uh, and that that's where Epi does fit, though. So, you know, so Epi is going to keep your airway open, your breathing open, your blood pressure, at least from tanking, from being low or dangerously low. Um, and epi is very benign. Epi is basically a synthetic adrenaline, um, and it's dosed either at 0 0.1, 0 0.15, or 0 0.3, depending on the person's weight. And it, it feels like a lot of coffee all at once. It's going to make your heart rate go up a little bit. It's going to make your blood pressure normalize if it's low. It might go up a little bit, but for most people, that's not going to be a big deal physiologically, it's kind of about the same amount of stress as sprinting up and down the block would be, generally speaking. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not dangerous. And luckily, there have been no case reports of fatal adverse reactions to self-injected epinephrine. Um, and, and I really have to say self-injected epinephrine. There have been rare case reports in medical settings where the wrong concentration has been given to people, and, and it's very rare. But the in intramuscular injectable pens that are available, uh, the generic epinephrine pens and the name brand ones, uh, user error is very, very rare. And if anything, <laughs> my biggest concern is somebody might inject their uh, finger or their digit rather than their upper thigh where it's supposed to go. But if it's dosed correctly in the thigh, and that's really the only place where it's supposed to be going, it's very benign. And it's potentially incredibly helpful to avoid the worst case scenario, which would be, you know, either getting very, very sick, hospitalized, intubated on vasopressors in the hospital, ICU admissions, or the elephant in the room, you know, a fatal reaction, which is also very rare, but it's one of those things where, you know, knock on wood, in our practice, we have not had any fatalities with our food reactions in food allergic patients. And I think the counseling that we give people to be, yeah, aggressive with epi is going to help support that outcome. <laughs> and, and it's in line with all the general practice parameters. Uh, so it's pretty standard where I think some nuance has been recently is what, what do you do after epi? <laughs> During the pandemic, these nearly last two years, we're mindful of a lot of things. I mean, we don't want to put people in the lion's den and, and contract COVID in an emergency room. We don't want to overwhelm our healthcare system more than it is already. Could there be a reasonable time to use Epi when it's indicated and not go to the hospital? I think there's a nice uh, review of how to handle that also on the Food Allergy Research and Education website. But to distill their recommendation for kind of a lower grade systemic reaction, where let's say we're talking like mild to moderate ABCs or mild to moderate symptoms in general, and you give Epi and that person is feeling better very, very quickly, and they don't require a second dose of epi, and they've got a responsible adult with them in a controlled environment. I, I think there may be, and this is a bit of a contentious subject, so um, this is a little controversial, but I, I think there could be a place and a time, especially during this pandemic, where one might 
choose to stay home after epi. Uh, and I think that's reasonable. I would recommend, however, that that person call their allergist, uh, assuming that they have one. If, if they don't or if they can't get a hold of them, it's not wrong to call emergency medical services, so 911, and at least have the professionals weigh in and see what they think. You know, they can do an on-the-site blood pressure check, an oxygen reading, listen to the lungs, um, and if everything's good, one dose of epi has worked and you've got somebody kind of helping you out, you maybe, maybe, maybe uh, you might be able to skirt a full trip to the ER. But I fully respect that not every allergist is going to recommend that or even bring it up with their patients. And forgive me for <laughs> complicating the conversation a little bit uh, for anybody who gets a different opinion from their allergist. That does that recommendation does exist, and uh, it's not going to be right for everybody. I usually tell people that if they're looking very, very sick, or if they require more than one dose of epi, or if they're not feeling better after one dose of epi, period, then they're going to be better off just going to the emergency room. When I read The Body Keeps the Score, I learned about how trauma is processed in the body. And when I think of going through these food allergy reactions and waiting for a reaction to potentially get worse and see my son totally in impending doom, as you say, or in as a three-year-old that for us looks like just running around like his tail is on fire or something and he's super scared and mommy, mommy and grabbing his tongue and running around. What do you think about this? Do you actually think it's less traumatic to just inject the EpiPen and let them heal and recover? Or uh, or would you say, wait it out and do some calming exercises? Obviously, the third option is not one you're going to recommend, but it's like run around with them and freak out and yell at your partner like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I think option three is the reality for a lot of people, right? And uh, and and especially for, you know, families where there's more than one parent, you're going to get you know, maybe three or four opinions all at once, even uh, with just two parents in the room. And then if you're bringing in Grammy and grandpa, I mean, the number of opinions are going to go up exponentially. But my advice for what it's worth in that scenario where everybody is freaking out, because that's that's usually definitely the norm. We do know just uh, from data that keeping the body cool and calm is definitely helpful. Now, how how is that possible when everybody's panicking? That that's you know a bit of a Jedi mind trick kind of thing, and uh, practicing meditative practices and deep breathing exercises and encouraging even a young kid who's panicking to to stay calm or just give them their preferred distraction. You know, it, I don't love putting kids in front of screens, but that is an amazing calming thing for a lot of kids. And if that's what it takes in that situation, there are worse things, but the art of distraction for a kid, I mean, that, that's hard and not every kid is easily distractible. Uh, but I think for, for parents, I talk about the game face, which is like neutral face, try to keep your panic inside because you don't ideally want that kid to to have to deal with your panic along with their panic, right? Because that's not going to help them. Uh, so, so game face, kind of neutral affect, calm tone, calm voice. And in the scenarios where I've needed to give up an effort in the office, I try to keep that same demeanor involved. And it's it's a therapeutic intervention in its own right. So you keep your breath in check, you keep your face and demeanor in check, and you just grab that pen, you probably don't even want to tell them you're doing it. And then you just quietly kind of distract them. And you just do it. And they might be mad at you, they might give you, you know, a look of like, who the are you? Why'd you just do this to me? But then you can distract again and be like, oh my goodness, what happened? And depending on the maturity level of the kid, right? And just like, oh, you did it. We did it. That was so fast. Oh, great. And just try to, you know, make it as, as a positive rather than a negative. Um, it, it does pinch. It does not feel great, but it's going to burn and sting for a couple seconds. Um, depending on the device that you have, some are maybe a little bit more user-friendly than others. If you've got an epinephrine pen that doesn't have an auto retractor, which is basically going to be all of the pens, except for the brand that's called an AviQ, 
and I really, I'm really neutral to the variant, by the way. I mean, they're all good. They all work. They all have the same active ingredient. It's really just the, the device itself that's a little different. But the only one that auto retracts, meaning, meaning that when you inject it, it's in, in the body for a second and then the needle automatically comes out. Uh, that's the AviQ brand. The other ones um, are, are going to be in the leg the whole time. So just be mindful of that. You want to kind of stabilize the leg. It is very rare to get lacerations from an epinephrine injection. I have had one patient with that and it required a few stitches. And now the kid's just like, look at my badge of honor. Look at this. I am so tough. And he's actually kind of proud of it, <laughs> which is awesome. And I think the parents did a really nice job at reframing what had happened. I think secretly the parents are totally PTSD about it. I've had friends and colleagues who will tell me, you know, they are PTSD about their kid's experience, but their kid is fine. And I think that's probably the one of the best outcomes you could imagine. Uh, owning your kid's trauma <laughs> and not letting your kid kind of live on with it, I think is a, is a great gift. Is that always possible? Oh my gosh, no, uh, we strive for it. If anything, uh, I think most kids are like, yeah, I was sick. That stunk. I needed the epi. And I've had a lot of kids tell their parents, I need epi because they've had it before. They know how quickly it works. They know that they feel better. They feel horrible with the reaction. And more often than not, I'm having kids ask for the epinephrine pen and ask for treatment, ask for help. And, and delaying the epinephrine just delays, I think, the the suffering from the acute allergic reaction that's ongoing. And you just want to nip it in the bud the way that I see it. In, in my opinion and, and in my practice, I think the art of medicine comes in here is that if, if you if you can strive to keep that game face, strive to keep your, again, your demeanor, your voice, your own breath under control, and just matter of factly, just follow the game plan on your action plan without asking too much of the kid. You don't want them to make the decision unless they've already told you that they need it. You don't want them to be put in the position where they're making complex decisions because uh, that's not fair, right? I mean, they just need to get help and you are there to help them. You are going to be the best read of what your kid needs. And if you've got a, a good allergist that can kind of train you ahead of time on what to identify and how to proceed with treating those acute reactions. But just every every caregiver needs to, generally speaking, be aware of the game plan. You do not want to be arguing about what needs to be done in a pinch because that that is awful. That's a hot mess. And that's going to delay treatment. That's going to create more drama. It's going to increase the kids' anxiety levels. Rehearsing that and having that game plan kind of well vetted amongst all the caregivers so that there's minimal confusion. There's always going to be a little confusion. I mean, none of this is going to be perfect. You minimizing that confusion, minimizing the drama, it'll, it'll help you guys down the road. I love Seed's PDS-08 Pediatric Daily Symbiotic, and you probably already know that if you're following me on social media. I mix it with my son's daily multivitamin every morning in a beautiful espresso cup when I can to show him that self-care is a beautiful daily ritual. Also, because it contains the dual-phase prebiotic made of short and long-chain carbohydrates, it does take an extra moment to dissolve. This easy-to-use and sustainably packaged symbiotic, meaning it's a two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic powder is formulated for benefits in and beyond the gut. It's the first children's symbiotic with nine probiotic strains clinically studied in a pediatric population for benefits across digestive, respiratory, and dermatological health. The pediatric daily symbiotic also supports easy, frequent poops, which happens to be my son's favorite topic. PDS08 even bridges the fiber gap with five grams of fiber per serving. It's a meaningful complement to a healthy diet. Also, it's reassuring to know that the product is free from sugar, artificial colors, flavors, flow agents, binders, preservatives, and if you're listening to this podcast, and likely most important to you, free of 14 classes of allergens. Seed is offering my listeners a 20% code towards your first month. Just head to seed.com backslash Emily Nolan and use the code EMILYN20 to get 20% off your first month today. Big question. My 
food allergy child has had a reaction to a scrambled egg and I'm afraid to introduce peanut butter now. What do I do? Can I go to your office? Should I, what if I'm seeing signs of eczema, have not introduced any of the top allergens to my child? What do you recommend for that food allergy parent to do? Um, be overseen by a pediatrician or an allergist or do it at home? What, what's your recommendation? Sure. Yeah. So the the LEAP trial that came out, I think in 2016-ish, long story short with that study is that the kids who were higher risk for, for peanut allergy who either underlying um, had egg allergy or, or eczema, if they passed their peanut challenge and then ate peanut at a rate of about two teaspoons of creamy peanut butter or 21 pieces of bomba sticks, which are uh, uh, peanut rice puffs, if they ate that about three times a week until the age of five, in, in one of the, the, the subgroups there, they had about an 80% lower rate of having a peanut allergy at the age of five if they introduced early and they consistently fed peanut. So to answer your question, so if we're talking about an infant with an egg reaction, a known egg allergy, or if we're talking about a kid with moderate to severe eczema, the practice parameters that are out there and what we recommend is that at the very least, they get a skin test. And if it's negative, then you can have an informed decision about what's called a, a supervised feed, which is something that you could do at home. But if, it, if it's wishy-washy, then I would definitely bring the child into the office to do a food challenge, which is basically a, a long, hopefully boring office visit <laughs> where we're giving small but increasingly larger quantities of of a food that we're pretty sure is going to be okay, but we're not so sure that we would just let that family eat it at home or give it to the, the child at home. Usually that's a situation where let's say the skin tests are wishy-washy or if there was maybe like a an unclear food reaction where a person ate a bunch of different ingredients and they had tests that were positive to some and middle of the road or negative for others, then we would bring that person into the office. And sometimes I just have the families come into the office if they're just, for whatever reason, not ready to do it at home. If they're too nervous, if they've got a little PTSD, maybe about another kid's reaction, like an older sibling's reaction. I've had a lot of scenarios where I'm pretty confident that the family could probably introduce it at home, but the family's just not ready to do it and their preference is to have it in the office. Fine. You know, if we've got the slot and the availability, a lot of our patients have to wait months to get in for a food challenge because there's only, you know, a certain number of slots a week that we have for this because a patient's in our office for a long time. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a big utilization of resources in most practices, right? It's a room for hours and hours. But yeah, if, if the family is amenable uh, to doing it at home, and if I think it's okay to do it at home, we'll have a conversation about that. But if I'm not okay with them doing it at home, or if they're not okay with doing it at home, and if it seems based off of the data, like the clinical history, the skin tests, or maybe the blood tests, then we'll do the challenge in the office. The, the food challenges, usually I'll tell people just for best successes, getting a good night's sleep, having a light breakfast, bring in your food, bring in your epinephrine pen, wear comfortable clothes, bring in, you know, healthy, allergy safe snacks, water, entertainment. These are things that'll make the visit a lot more comfortable and successful and come excited, you know, just try to pump it up, try to be confident. I know that sounds almost stupid, but if someone's not excited, if they're really nervous, if they are not in the right frame of mind for a food challenge, it gets hard to discern if someone's having a reaction because the brain is a powerful organ. And, and I have some kids who are just so nervous to eat the food and then they get itchy just looking at the food, <laughs> which is normal. I mean, it's just a normal brain trick, zero judgment on that one, but it's, it's a real, it's a real problem. Um, and, and it, it sometimes isn't, and that's great. You know, someone can just power through and eat that food and not have any kind of inkling of anything, uh, problematic, then fantastic. I think the biggest problem that we have in the way that we do our food challenges is when nerves kind of get the better of people. And, and I, I expect it. I know it's going to happen in a few number of cases, but coming excited seems to be the fix for that. And I know that's not always possible for everybody. And, and the other thing too, is that when folks don't pass a food challenge, I don't really consider that a fail. It's just data. You know, it's just, hey, we really know now that 
that is not the right food for you. And thank goodness we know it, you know, is kind of the conversation that I have with, with families. I've had some people get really upset when, when they, when they don't pass a food challenge. And I never want a family to feel like they're getting forced into a food challenge. That is definitely not RMO. We only leave it as an optional elective thing. It's never something that we would want to quote unquote, like make somebody do, because that, that's not going to work. And if somebody fails, then the, sometimes there's a lot of hard feelings. Rarely ever happens though. Functionally, it's very straightforward. We give very small doses of a food in the office in succession every 15 to 20 minutes or so. Uh, usually we'll advance the dose if someone has done well with the previous dose. We keep people in our office for about an hour, sometimes hour and a half, depending uh, and then we let them go. I, I do recommend that people, for instance, don't go back to school, that they don't do soccer practice or do any heavy physical activity, and that they be with a responsible adult for at least the rest of the day until they go to bed that night, and that they call us if there are any problems after the, the challenge. I, I generally speaking recommend, though, that once somebody has ingested a food, tolerated it, if it was ever a, a really questionable food, then they then continue to consume it on a regular basis just to maintain that tolerance of the food. And that could look like a serving maybe two to three times a week. What I don't want people to do, though, is go weeks and months or years <laughs> without eating the food because it's possible, although unlikely, for somebody to either have a reoccurrence of a food allergen that they've previously outgrown, or maybe if they're really very rarely ever eating that food, it's possible, although very unlikely, to then become allergic to it if they don't eat that food regularly. And usually the, these are with those top nine food allergens like milk, egg, wheat, soy, fish, shellfish, uh, peanuts, tree nuts, um, sesame. So you have the oral food challenge, which is the gold standard of food allergies and understanding you know, if the child is actually allergic or not. And then we also have the blood work, Tell us a little bit about the process. When my son had met his first reaction, we're going to the allergist. What do I expect? And then like, what are the tests like? How do I read them? And how do I understand what is going on? Yeah. And I think the first thing that I like to do is just know what happened. You know, what was the first reaction? How did we even think about food allergies for this individual to, to begin with? Because that <laughs> origin story is really, really important because some people there is none. You know, it was I got my kid skin tested when they were an infant because of their siblings allergy. And I have never fed this kid anything. What's easier for me is if someone says we were at, you know, X, Y or Z restaurant or my kid definitely ate this definite food with this definite allergen. If they describe to me a classic food allergy event, for me, that's that's the easiest because that's a slam dunk history where, yep, that's a high risk food. Yep, that was a classic food reaction. And then we confirm either by just clinical history, sometimes the diagnosis, or if we want to back it up with objective stuff, or if there's any kind of concern about maybe other allergens that might be related to the one that we think is the main culprit, then we can do some testing like skin tests or blood tests. So skin tests are basically where we take plastic little tines with a pokey-ish end to it. They look like plastic toothpicks. And for an adult, I would say it's like a nothing type of procedure. You just feel like you're getting poked with a toothpick over and over again. And it's, it's not the funnest thing, but it's not uncomfortable. I think for a kid that's not prepared, it might be a little scary, but I think most allergy practices are pretty good about, again, the distractions with kids and, you know, keeping that positive face and lots of reinforcements and, you know, atta girls and atta boys to, you know, you know, going through something that's scary and tough, but functionally it, it feels like a toothpick poking you over and over again, but it's on your back. And, you know, for a kid that can't see what's going on or for, for a kid who likes a lot of control in their life, that stinks for them. It just stinks. Um, so I respect that our, our staff is trained to just respect where kids are. You can't get false positives. Uh, that is a problem with a skin test. Uh, but if you can match a, a good clinical history with skin tests that makes sense, it pieces the puzzle together for you. Uh, blood tests are purely just quantitative data. At the beginning of our talk here, we talked about IgE. 
that blood test is going to measure directly how high the levels of IgE are to foods that we're curious about. So we can kind of do like an a la carte thing where we're checking different foods or maybe groupings of foods, uh, and we can measure how high these foods are. Where things get really complicated with food allergy interpretation, though, is that with skin testing, you can you can get great negative predictive value. So if a food test is negative on a skin test, highly likely that that person is going to be totally fine for that food. But you also can get kind of a scale on the blood test that sometimes can be confusing. So the the blood test can pick up very, very, very microscopic amounts of IgE to foods. Sometimes those very low levels Sometimes they can be clinically significant. Sometimes you can have people with really robust, horrible reactions, even with low level IgE levels, uh, which we call sensitizations. But sometimes those aren't really clinically meaningful. Uh, So depending on what the levels are and what the history is and maybe what the skin test is, we can kind of put those three things together and then decide whether or not a food challenge is reasonable. The blood tests are um, hard even for trained allergists sometimes to interpret with a family. But I, I would recommend for food testing if it's positive at all and if there's a clinical history that is interesting. (laughs) So anything that's led to acute visits or scary visits or concerning reactions that that they talk with a board certified allergist about their results. So let's say our child is diagnosed with a food allergy. The first step, well, one of the many of first steps, because there are many, is strict avoidance. We don't want to introduce that allergen to the child anymore until we start something called oral immunotherapy if we choose to do that and our child is a good candidate for that type of therapy. What is OIT? When can we start? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, okay. So OIT is definitely new. (laughs) The gist of oral immunotherapy is that we're taking a kid that's allergic and we're trying to make them a little bit more resilient to exposures. I wouldn't want any allergist to say that it's a cure, in my opinion, because there really isn't a lot of data to say that we can we can cure people of food allergies. We might, in some cases, allow somebody to maybe outgrow their allergy faster if they're very young. That's not a firm promise. It's just sort of a hope with this type of therapy. But the main thing that I kind of think about this type of work, uh, which is a lot of work, <laughs> uh, as you will, I'm sure, attest to, is that we're really just trying to make their day-to-day experiences safer. But it comes at a, at a cost. I mean, this is a lot of time and effort for a family. I've, I've, I've also joked with families that this is a lifestyle. This is, you know, a full-on commitment. You are coming to your allergist's office, you know, once every other week, maybe at, at the very least once a month. And then you're doing this therapy every day at home in a very, very controlled manner. You know, we're, we're intentionally giving food allergens that are potentially also very risky that can cause anaphylaxis to hopefully downregulate those receptors on the mast cells and, and maybe build up good blocking antibodies so that those receptor sites are less available. And if we're lucky, maybe that IgE goes away, maybe those receptor sites just go away by slowly and methodically introducing a very carefully measured quantity of the food allergen on a daily basis with some, you know, protocol changes if there's illness or if, you know, we missed a dose by accident. But the idea is that you're dosing every day, uh, at least 99% of the time. So functionally, uh, it looks like a visit to our office every two weeks. Uh, The first one's much longer. It's maybe four to five hours. The other visits are about an hour and a half, maybe longer if there's a reaction. And then every day, we have to kind of set up about a two-hour window for the, the family at home to, to dose and then carefully observe the kiddo at home. And that's a lot, you know, and we also recommend that we don't have the kiddo exercise vigorously because ex- exercise can exacerbate or bring on or worsen an allergic reaction uh, for the two hours after dosing. If the kid's sick, we might need to reduce or, or, or hold the dose for a few days if a child has missed many, many days, like three days or more, then we might need to bring that person in again for kind of an off-track visit. That is never fun. And if there's a reaction, which which can happen, then we've got to be able to treat it. We have our action plans don't place. We would still use EPI as per protocol. Sometimes may need to send people to the emergency room if they need more than one dose of EPI. 
or if it's a really bad reaction, uh, we might need to send them there. The Palforzi literature is interesting because in the in the buildup phase, so as the kids were building up on on uh, the peanut flour, they actually had a higher rate of epinephrine pen usage at about nine percent during that buildup phase versus four percent in placebo. So that's something that I think is important for all the families to know that there's this tricky phase. But the carrot behind this therapy is that if you can get a kid through the buildup phase, which doesn't always happen, and and I don't want people to feel bad or guilty or ashamed or any of the bad feelings if they can't get through the, the buildup phase, because it's just, it's very hard. But if they can, and then if they can stay on that maintenance dose for, for palforzia, it's the equivalent to three peanuts. It's 300 milligrams. Each peanut, by the way, is about 100 milligrams of peanut. And if they can stay on that, the, the completers, so the people that completed the trial and stayed on it for two years, when they were challenged with the equivalent of 10 peanuts, about 80% of these kids were able to eat 10 peanuts without having a reaction. So that's that is dazzling, right? That That's fantastic. But a lot of kids had to drop out. You know, it, a lot of kids had, you know, multiple anaphylactic reactions. Some developed chronic abdominal pain that was just a deal breaker. A lot of people just dropped out because of the logistical nightmare that it is. And I try to be really straightforward with families. And I feel like probably I'm talking more people out of doing oral immunotherapy than into it. That's with palforzia. And then for kind of off-label Bamba and then kind of our under four uh, oral immunotherapy program, we've had a little bit more flexibility with those programs. We can be a bit more nuanced with our dosing. We can slow it down. We have a small number of people doing that as well. And, and I might be speaking out of school here a little bit, but I think it's important when families are looking at a program and who's providing it to them. Is this program doing research? Um, if so, are they publishing? Are they involved in their regional allergy societies? Are they involved in the national conversation or even international conversation on food allergy research? If they are mainly providing oral immunotherapy, if that is their main reason uh, for their clinical practice, my expectation, if I was a consumer, I would want to see, you know, hey, if you're like this center for food allergy immunotherapy, let me see your publications. Let me see what posters you've presented at the national conferences or regional conferences. Let me see your data. And then you can make an informed decision. Most of the allergists that I know and, and, and are friendly with and, and have a nice community with in, in the allergy world here in the D.C. area, most of us, you know, if we're going to perform oral immunotherapy, are going to take insurance. And we might have some patients on what's called a chronic care management plan, which is also something that's usually covered by insurance. And it's a pretty nominal fee of maybe a couple hundred dollars a month. Uh, and, and we only bill for that if there's about 20 plus minutes worth of time involved with, let's say, prior authorizations or phone calls, or if there's a lot of coordination of care that's involved with the patient, and then we don't bill for it if we if we don't do that. Um, and not all practices will, will even use the chronic care management um, codes that are available. Uh, sometimes that's covered by insurance, sometimes, sometimes that's not, but we're, we're pretty straightforward and, and, and upfront about what we're doing. It's a conversation. Oral immunotherapy, um, I know sometimes is, is offered by other groups that don't take insurance. I would just, as a consumer of healthcare, you know, vet that provider as best you can with outcomes and look at what they're doing in, for the community or not uh, and the greater conversation of food allergy work, but also know, you know, what kind of fees you're really looking into. You know, the medical system in the U.S. is a broad, broad, broad spectrum of offerings, and there are going to be more concierge level practices. They're going to be, you know, people that allergists that might work only in academics. And then there's going to be kind of, you know, the uh, average community allergist like myself that, you know, is we're running a small business. So, you know, I know that my patients matter. I know that their outcomes matter. And if their outcomes are good, I'm going to keep on seeing patients because they'll refer people to me and their pediatricians will know the good work that we've done. And, and that's, that's how I kind of envision our practice is that, you know, we're here for good patient outcomes, improving quality of life. Any, any good medical practice across the board will try to do that for people too. 
But when we're talking about something experimental like oral immunotherapy, it's it's exciting. It's dazzling. You know, I get excited by it. I get scared by it. And I think we should be scared a little bit. You know, uh, there are cases where people can really get hurt. It's okay to be scared and brave, you know, and it's okay to have a healthy balance between uh, risks and benefits and really knowing what you're getting into. Um, because I, I do know that oral immunotherapy is going to have that potential, you know, bad day, you know, and most people, if they're doing oral immunotherapy, they need to be prepared for that bad day. A long story short, um, oral immunotherapy, it's a lot of work. It's definitely not going to be the right choice for everybody. Choosing to continue with food avoidance is totally fine. Uh, everybody needs an action plan. Everybody needs to know how and when and where to use Epi. And if you're choosing oral immunotherapy, I would just go into it eyes wide open, uh, you know, with the hope that it would help uh, reduce the chances of having anaphylaxis. Maybe, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, it might maybe in some cases work like a quote unquote cure or help that person outgrow their food allergy faster is really more so what I'm looking for there may be something better down the road. Um, it's just that this is what we have now. But luckily, our you know, hats off to our academics who are doing all of this work and hats off also to industry research to look at this problem because it is huge and the rates have gone up so much and it does really derail a lot of families for a while until they find their new steady state. Do you believe that addressing root causes of inflammation may help heal our children with food allergies like gut health, diet, chronic stress, or even their environment? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns to that. And so I'm going to say yes, but I don't know what those answers are. <laughs> um, a few things that I put down for notes ahead of time. Um the microbiome is huge, right? We don't know what is the magic bullet there. And uh, um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Chow Chow in, um, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, she's uh, uh, in Chicago and they, they have a, a nice big grant to study the human microbiome, but they're making lots of connections between what's in our gut, what bacteria is there and how that drives uh, atopy, which is just being allergic in general. And after a recent talk with her a few years ago, what I, I appreciated was that it's not just my antibiotics as a mom. Uh, and it's not just necessarily the antibiotics that I give to my kids or the fever reducers, the pain relievers, or my diet. It's what my mom took and what her mom took there. There unfortunately is a generational loss over many, many generations with, probably a culmination of all of the above. Uh, we're a clean nation. We're, we've got a lot of antibiotic usage. Our C-section rate is higher. We eat a lot of processed foods. We don't have a lot of, you know, dirty foods with, with good bacteria. Um, our diet is not what it should be by any means, uh, mine included. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'll just be the first person to say that. Uh, but it's also, yeah, what my grandmother took for antibiotics. And that's the funny thing. It's just, you know, we pass on our bacteria, our gut bacteria to our kids. And if they're born via C-section, they're going to get less of that versus a natural vaginal birth. There, there has been, we think, a generational loss in the flora and fauna in our gut. Now, how that then relates to food allergies is a big, big, big question. There's probably something to it. I do think, though, just as a practical pro tip for any kiddo that has sensitive skin as a baby, uh, daily bathing and moisturizing and really getting that barrier defense so that that infant isn't absorbing food allergens through their skin uh, seems to also be very, very helpful in some cases to prevent sensitization to foods. So there is something to that too. And uh, yeah, uh, stress. What is stress? We all have it. <laughs> Everybody has a different form of stress and how we manage our stress is also kind of the million dollar question that I certainly don't have figured out either. I agree that there's something to it and I, I hope there's more research into this and also just sort of data outcomes reporting, you know, um, people who um, can either look at retrospective trials or prospective um, surveys of people who report, let's say, low or medium or high stress and how, how much of that correlates to outcomes with food allergies. Um, 
I, I, I definitely like to pay attention to this. I just, I wouldn't pretend to know how to figure this out right now. Um, and I certainly would be again, very leery as a healthcare consumer to assume that there's a magic bullet because there just isn't. And I wish there was a healthy kind of optimistic, but skeptical view of medicine is going to give you that balance to make you the most well-informed, well-read consumer of your own healthcare. Look at, you know, your prescriber's motivations, like what are they in this for? Um, what is, what, what do they like to do? What, what have they proven that they can do? Um, and who's funding them? You know, is it, is it you? Is it your concierge level medicine? Is it through a third party payer, like your insurance plan? Because there's some checks and balances there. And are they federally funded? You know, are they getting grants uh, from this, that or the other? Are they research based? Uh, that'll help you make an informed decision too on on what your provider is offering you. So you mentioned um, keeping skin barriers, bathing your baby every day. I will note: do not bathe your baby in the kitchen sink where all the food allergens are. <laughs> right, good call. Good call. Yeah, because we're trying to avoid food on the skin. Separate That's tub. the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Thank you. What, yep. what are some of the um, products that you recommend for food allergy children or, or environmental allergy? Well, sometimes it's just super basic stuff. I mean, just, you know, a rinse off, you don't even necessarily need to use soap. I, I think just rinsing is fine. A short little bath, no long, you know, hours long baths. It's, you just want to get the skin clean and hydrated. And then you want to trap in that moisture gently after just a light pat dry on the skin and even Vaseline, just that kind of barrier ointment, or if, if petrolatum products are not your thing, uh, Vanny cream has a nice line of products that I use a lot. CeraVe uh, also has ceramides in it, which are the idea behind that is that we're trying to kind of reestablish good skin integrity. But if one product doesn't work very well, and if you've tried a variety of things, I would say talk to your allergist or dermatologist about alternative options. But simple is usually the best way to go. You don't need super fancy stuff. I would in general try to avoid things with multiple ingredients, smaller ingredient lists and fragrance free. And and when you're putting on the moisturizers, just make sure your own hands are clean that you don't want to, you know, be putting your hand into a tub of stuff over and over again. Uh, pump bottles are typically better so that you're not putting skin bacteria into this thing and closing the lid and making a Petri dish out of your cream or lotion uh, container. Uh, so pump bottles, clean hands, light application, the soak and seal method seems to be very helpful and uh, reapplying best you can um, with diaper changes if they're really little or if they're really dried out, like the winter time frame, reapplying best you can. Um, and if one product burns and stings, uh, ice packs can be useful. But the more you apply the barrier emollients, uh, the burning and stinging should get better over time trying not to let it get so bad to where it burns and stings uh, for eczema is what I'm talking about. But preemptive care is great if you can swing it. Um, and then, yeah, for those little babies, lots and lots of uh, moisturizing is a, is a great thing to do for, for them. I recently, maybe like a year ago, have been doing a lot of research. I wanted an organic product, something that was natural. And I found California Baby and they are a wonderful product. This is not sponsored, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I have done a podcast with Jessica Iklasoy, the CEO of California Baby on Skin Barriers. Nice. So we have an episode. Great. Um, they use coconut. What's your thoughts on coconut oil for children in skincare? Yeah, you know, it, it tends to be not a major player in any food allergens. I mean, are there people who are allergic to coconut, yes, but it is not a major factor in most of our cases. It's listed as a tree nut by the USDA, but I think that's just for practicality. It, it really is a very, very rare sensitizer, meaning that it's very unusual for people to become sensitized to it, so positive skin tests or blood tests. And then it's very, very rarely an allergen. If it works for you, great. And same thing with like shea butter too, which is also, you know, a, technically a nut butter, but it's very hydrating, very moisture rich, uh, really is a nice way to kind of reestablish a skin barrier. Um, offhand, I also know that a lot of our families like Mustela products, and that's kind of on our short list. 
but it, it sometimes is at the end of the day, kind of a trial and error process. This was so informative, Dr. Blair. Thank you so much for your time and all of this information. We, and I speak for all the listeners and myself, we are so grateful and could not thank you enough. Oh man, I really, honestly, my pleasure. I, this is the stuff that I'd love to talk about, you know, and I can literally go on all day with these kind of things. And I, I thank you for, you know, inviting me for this. And I would say, you know, just for anybody that's been listening to me, if it doesn't seem to make sense, please talk with your allergist. And I'll just make a plug for board certified allergists, because uh, I think they're going to be most up to date, most well informed and give you the broadest options uh, to choose from. Um, and, you know, and if you don't like the first person that you see, it's okay. There really should be no ego in having opinion from an allergist, you know, you, you can get as many opinions as you want, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, I, best of luck uh, to your listening audience. And uh, yeah, we'll see you and Ellie soon, I guess. Thank you so much, Dr. Blair. Thanks for listening today. If you're not ready to get started with Fear to Freedom, my pediatric food allergy course, I do have a pediatric food allergy essentials resource with a ton, I mean a ton of incredible resources to get you started on your food allergy journey and healing your child with food allergies. You can download that right now on emilynolan.com and get started. If there's anything in this episode that resonated with you or led you to take action, I'd love for you to share it with me on social as well as any other friends and family that have children with food allergies or newborn children who may not have food allergies, but you know, may have the possibility to prevent it with this information. Remember to rate and review this podcast. It's a great way to give other parents of food allergy children some much needed hope and encouragement. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. I am so grateful for all of your voices and support and love. And I'm just sending you all a great big hug. Mm -hmm.